Welcome to the HVMN Podcast. Coming up in this episode. Now then, what can happen then is, is this virus goes down into the lung. And uh, if you imagine an, the airway, there's a, a cells that line the airway and they kind of manage um they manage airflow and they can either constrict or dilate the airways and um and they have this receptor called an ACE2 receptor and that is the receptor that this virus binds onto and so then what can happen is the virus binds on and it injects itself into the cell and then once it injects itself into the cell it takes over the machinery of the cell and uh, makes a whole bunch of copies and then the cell is killed and then the virus goes back out and then so then you, if you imagine this airway that just had one virus in it now it's full of virus and then it's going to start to attack other cells and so then that's going to continue and as that continues then people can progress from just having a sore throat and some, and and if you have a sore throat, then the body thinks, "Uh oh, there's a virus. Let's create a fever to try to kill the virus." That's why people present with a fever. But then, what happens if it keeps going down and it gets into the lung? Then someone can get a pneumonia. When they get a pneumonia uh, with this virus, one thing that happens is is the immune system goes, "Oh, this is." this is worse than a normal virus and it kind of goes crazy and it, it has an uh, a overwhelming immune response and and the name that has been given to that immune response is called the cytokine storm when that happens it creates a profound amount of too much inflammation and then when that happens the infection can spill over from being in the lung to in the bloodstream mm. and then once it gets and that's the- where you get the acute respiratory distress system, ARDS, right? One of the most serious presentations of COVID. Yeah. So. Hey, everyone. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. And today is when we're going live is Tuesday, April 28th. And today, I think we have a really excellent guest to talk a little bit about how COVID pandemic is rolling through and and how uh, it's kind of like at the front lines as a practicing uh, clinician today. He also comes with a broad background in integrative and functional medicine. So I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Matthew Cook. Thanks for coming on the program. How are you doing? I'm awesome. Thanks so much. It's nice to be with you. Tell us about your formal training. I think it'd be good to get the CV out there as we kind of get our audience up to speed in terms of your specialties and in your practice areas? Yeah, so it's interesting. I was always interested in integrative medicine. Um, And uh, actually, I I went to China and studied uh, acupuncture when I was in medical school. Hmm. My mentor in acupuncture had been commissioned uh, by Chairman Mao to go to the anesthesia department. And so they used to do acupuncture and as because when they did that, they would give less anesthesia. And so I was going into anesthesiology. Uh, and so they would, they would give acupuncture and then it would allow them to give less anesthesia during surgery. And so he, he did that for like 25 years. 
And then the inhalational anesthetics became generic, and then they were able to just turn it up because it wasn't so expensive. Huh. And so then he went back to the acupuncture department. And so I went out and I did anesthesia, and, and my expert was my expertise was something called regional anesthesia, where basically I would take a needle and I would put it real close to a nerve, uh, and I'd be looking at the nerve with ultrasound, and then I would put fluid around the nerve that would put that nerve to sleep. And then I would do things like put the shoulder all the way to sleep and then do surgery on the shoulder wide awake. Then about four or five years ago, I figured out that uh, if you started to put solutions that were anti-inflammatory and regenerative around nerves, you could fix peripheral nerve pain. And a lot of times that would uh, have a lot of improvements and benefits in terms of musculoskeletal health. And so then I, I uh, evolved into what I do now, which is integrative medicine, a lot of sports medicine, a, a lot of injection to every nerve, joint, ligament, tendon, fascia in the body, an approach to infectious disease where we uh, take a very comprehensive approach and use a whole bunch of different IV therapies that help uh, the, the main group of people who we've been working with on an infectious disease front until now has been patients with Lyme disease and, and a lot of patients with real complex illness, uh, mold and have kind of a thoughtful, uh, comprehensive approach to taking care of them. Interesting. And did you do your residency in San Francisco? I was just, again, like, where did you grow up? I mean, like, it seems like you've really built a career and a life in the Bay Area. Were you a Bay Area resident from day one? Or? No, it's, it's funny. I grew up in Western Montana. Okay. And I was really into outdoor sports and climbing and expeditions. My mentor was this guy, Dr. Hornbein, who was this legendary anesthesiologist who'd climbed Everest and done all of this stuff. He retired when I, right at the end of my medical school, and there was sort of chaos at the University of Washington anesthesia department. Knowing what I know now, that was just a little chaos for a year, and it was going to be fine. But because of that, and only really because of that, I actually ended up coming to anesthesia, did my anesthesia residency at UCSF. And the statistics is that you're going to get a job within 60 miles of wherever you did your anesthesiology, wherever you do your residency. Yeah. And so in my case, I'm about 45 minutes south of you in San Francisco. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's one of those uh, path dependencies in life where these might be sort of arbitrary, almost <laughs> random events, but that just dictates the next 10, 20, 30 years of a career. Um, yeah, and looks like, you know, luckily things seemed like it worked out well in terms of being the Bay Area, which is, I would say, one of the most forward thinking communities around some of the approaches with functional integrative medicine. Totally. You know, and it's interesting. I before I did all of this stuff, I got a doctorate in medical Qigong. I did a three year Chinese medicine program. I like to tell everybody that I came from the heart of the medical industrial complex, which is the um uh, anesthesiology, because where it's like operating room, I, I, I yeah. spent most of my life actually wearing a mask. A lot of the things that I learned and the policies and procedures and strategies that we use have been super helpful in integrative medicine. So I'm actually delighted that I took this circuitous path. I think it's a very interesting background where usually you have folks that have that Western medical school background residency, that formal training. And then you have a different school of, of healers that talk about kind of the Eastern philosophies. But it's rare to have that combination in both. So I do definitely want to tease into those different schools of practices. What is evidence-based? What is science-based? How do you, again, quote-unquote, integrate the randomized controlled trials of peer-reviewed studies with thousands of years of culture and, and, and sort of 
knowledge in a, in a very different philosophy. Um, but let's focus on kind of the elephant in the room uh, in terms of COVID. So it's interesting. Yeah, we're, we're in a, a similar place in the Bay Area. And so it's just so different here. Part of that is that they did a good job of flattening the curve and shutting it down soon. Uh, and I think you, you have to do that. And there's a couple of caveats that I have around that. I think that it was here in January, and I think that it was probably here in December. I'm not treating any active cases right now, although um, we're, we, we're submitting uh, an IRB application uh, for a scientific protocol that I'm going to be testing. Mm, and, and so I'm not going to be, I'm not promoting that I'm doing anything uh, until then. But uh, I can tell you, I had eight people present to my office with pneumonia in their 30s and 40s uh, in January and February. At that time, it just seemed surreal that we're, we have this string of people that had pneumonia, and I should have realized it sooner. Clearly, it's the elephant in the room, and it's going to be super interesting to see how it plays out. I'm just like reflecting on my thinking about this disease over the last four, five, six weeks within shelter in place, and then just following the news all the way from Wuhan and then Italy, where you see these like very, very serious, harsh lockdowns. Obviously, in the states, we're doing that. We're it's a it's a much different approach. I would say even our shelter in place is a lot more loose than what we we've seen in other localities. It's just like a very confusing disease to me, where you see war stories of hospitals in the boroughs of New York, where doctors, nurses are literally dying on the front lines without PPE. And then you see TikToks of other hospital workers making dance videos and mm -hmm. they've completely smashed the curve for what we have seen so far. Let's not, you know, hopefully that continues. But to me, it's, 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 it's like hard to synthesize all the information where is this because it was early lockdown and early uh, awareness in, in terms of the leadership in the Bay Area, or is it there's multiple strains of the SARS-CoV-2 virus? Uh, I've seen some literature that suggests that the most potent strain has 720 times the viral load. The least potent strain, there's you know potentially one strain that went from China to Europe to the East Coast of the United States where that might explain some of the differences in presentation from another strain, a substrain that went from China to the West Coast of the United States. I think there's a lot of reasonable mechanisms, reasonable hypotheses here. It's confusing. There's a lot of data coming through. Right. And so then to, to really have a great conversation about that, we need uh, testing and then testing done within strains. And so then we need to test actually significant sizes of a population in different areas and then to correlate that. Yeah. Um, and so we're, we're not going to have that happen. And so we're almost kind of managing that clinically from, a, from, as a result of that. Uh, what, you know, I just saw a reference of this, but it's, it's, it's what I think clinically is happening. And apparently they went into Germany into some houses where, uh, people were positive and they were testing the, tables and, and and swabbing different places to see how much live virus there was and it was very minimal 
And my sense is that, you know, we were treating much people in our office, but we're not really hugging and touching that much. Uh, we're just kind of pleasantly sort of back, you know, communicating and talking. And so, uh, if you assume that we treat, we had a bunch of people in the office and no one got sick through that period, I think that my feeling is, is that you need a fairly significant close exposure to, to convert positive. Now, in, in a hospital where anesthesiologists are running around intubating people, there's a lot ton of exposure there. Um, there's a lot of exposure when you're treating people. There's a lot of exposure if you're at a Mardi Gras parade. Uh, New York is so populous that we're constantly on top of each other and coughing and stuff like that. Whereas here, there's so much more space. Uh, that may be part of it. Strains may be part of it. I predict we're looking down a road of six or eight months of reopening with a moderate amount of social distancing. And so I think we're probably going to have masks for a significant period of time. And then we're going to be meeting and hanging out and probably having dinner and things like that, but having way more social distance than we've ever had before. I think we're probably not going to be hugging. I think we're not going to be shaking hands. And Somebody asked me, what's going to happen? I go, it's almost like it's going to be a social phenomena. Society is going to decide when it's safe to start hugging again, when it's safe to start shaking hands again. And I don't think that's going to be for a while. But I think some minimal social distancing guidelines are going to be able to prevent most of the transmission. And this this is going to take more research. And that's a broad statement that's not specific enough, but I think that's the direction we're heading in. Yeah, I think that seems fair. And I would say consistent with my current thinking as well. I think, you know, you've already seen companies mandate, I, I saw that Facebook was going to limit their event sizes to max 50 people until June 2021. You know, there's probably not going to be any live events for at least the next couple quarters. And we'll see when we have the first concert or the first dance party where you have a little bit of that like closed and contained space. <laughs> and I think it's interesting to think about what do restaurants look like? Are we going to have to seat uh, every other table or, or you're going to have to have four people max per table that used to sit eight? Uh, mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right that there's going to be some top-down mandate from regulators, from authorities. But I think truly, I think it's going to be a bottoms up thing. Like, mm -hmm. am I going to like shake your hand when I meet you for the first time? Cause that's, or is that going to be weird and overly forward of someone to like hug or shake hands now? Right. It's like, right. you almost don't want to be forcing someone in a socially awkward way to be like, I want to get close to you. I think those are some interesting social cultural questions that this is just a, a, a this completely new phenomenon. I, I, I wonder what am I going to do when I see like a cousin for the first time? Like, are we going to hug? Are we just going to wave at each other? That's an interesting question. I think it's so still so fluid. Yeah, I think it's totally fluid. Somebody asked me if I was going to hug him. And I first I said yes, but then I said, you know what, probably what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pay attention to the wave of, of the social norm. And I'm just going to follow that. And then at some point, it's going to be normal to shake hands again. And whenever that point is, and, and part of that is going to be determined by, is there going to be a second wave in the fall or is there not? And, yep. 
uh, what's it going to be like here? What's it going to be like in the South? What's it going to be like in different demographics and different locations? And so I think it'll be a little bit rocky and spotty where people try to reopen, try to go back to normal. It might work. It might not work. I think there just be so many different variables that are confounded. Ideally, we have testing in place. Ideally, it seems that like some of the localities that have seemed to control this or mediate it better have fever stations that just kind of just check in on people to mitigate that spread. There's a much higher incidence of compliance with mask wearing. Uh, it looks like, at least in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, and when I'm walking around, more and more people are wearing that those masks. Mm-hmm. I think that that is 99% of the transmission is when we're walking around and accidentally coughing on somebody. Or This could be really good to modify our behavior in that way for a while. Yeah. So I think a lot of moving parts here, but let's let's drill down to in, in terms of your direct experience here. So it looks like you've treated likely COVID patients and have seen some positive results and have uh, presumed learned a couple things that you'll be testing in your upcoming study that you're bringing through IRB. Can you talk about that a little bit more? What have you been seeing? What is your synthesis of standard of care, and then what have you seen successful in your practice? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, we're, we're at a very interesting moment, and also just in terms of talking. Like, apparently, there was a, a, a med spa uh, in the Midwest that was promoting that they were treating COVID patients with vitamin C, and the FDA rate, or the FBI rated them with, like, Ooh machine guns so kind of crazy and so it's a hyped up moment because there's a there's a, a voice uh on the side of sort of pure western sort of academic medicine that doesn't want to promote anything that's not rigorously scientifically proven everything that's come out on the on the drug front uh there's nothing that i'm super excited about and, and then on, on the integrative side, there's a bunch of things that people are doing just with supplements and wellness that I think are intriguing that I can kind of tell you about. And then on the interventional side, what we do, there are um, some, some approaches uh, that are, are interesting. And so we can kind of go into that if you want. Yeah, let's, let's definitely do that. There are like common sense things in terms of being healthy, exercising, cleaning up your diet. Um, there's great associ- associational data showing that upper quartile ranges of vitamin D correlate quite like strongly with outcomes in terms of mild to severe presentations of COVID. So I think like these things in, in vitamin C, there seems to be some interesting literature how that might be useful or play a role in terms of boosting overall immune function. And I think it's like the balance between like, do you want to be promoting snake oil stuff? And and like, that's bad. But what about all the things on the margin that are cheap, safe, and could be useful that haven't yet been fully studied? What do we do with, with that bucket? And I think that's where people need to make their kind of get educated and learn from their, you know, talk to experts, get data from folks who are uh, you know, using this on the front lines and collecting some science, some some data there. I think that's where some of the interesting things are to have these conversations. Okay, I have a good idea. So here's what uh, we'll do. I'm going to talk you through 
how COVID goes through the body. And then what I will do is I'll talk you through the supplement side of what we're doing and then some what what my model of the treatment side would be. And um, and then we, we can explore that. And I'll explain it as I'm explaining kind of the, the natural history of, of how I think this virus is doing what it does. How's that sound? Cool. Perfect. So the, the first thing that happens is, let's call it stage one, is that this virus can come into your airway and, and, and your upper airway and then you can get a you can get a sore throat and start to have some some flu symptoms and if and what i'd like to do is say that in addition to uh coming into your throat if if somebody coughed on you and then you breathe some of that in you could swallow and then some of that virus might go into your intestines Mm-hmm. And so the uh, up front, the first two places that it could go was a uh, your throat and upper airway, or b your, your intestines. In terms of the virus carrying through the intestines, does the stomach acid not break down the virus, or in some cases the virus is tucked in, 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 in into what is a little bit insulated, where it's not destroyed by uh, hydrochloric acid. So I'm sure the virus is sensitive to hydrochloric acid, but we know that the virus can get in. People are having abdominal symptoms. It's attacking the lining of the intestine, and we know that virus can be shed um, through a fecal-oral route. So we we know that it's getting through somehow, and so so obviously stomach acid is probably a protection, but uh, not enough for all people. But then that's a good question because then that begs us the answer. So then, what is the approach for making someone resistant and as healthy as they can possibly be to prevent them getting that that early? Uh, stage one infection. It's everything that you've been hearing about on the news. So uh, uh, oral vitamin C, uh, zinc, uh, people that have higher levels of zinc are probably uh, somewhat resistant to uh, flus and coronaviruses in general. Uh, Quercetin uh, you can take as an oral supplement and has uh, uh, effects against coronaviruses uh, and has a bunch of gastrointestinal uh, benefits. Zinc uh, is has antiviral benefits, and you can take zinc lozenges that are in your airway, and and so the having a higher concentration of zinc in the cells in that area can be helpful. And then people can do uh, nebulizing protocols, either with uh, uh, hypertonic C minerals or with uh, glutathione, and we teach people how to do those. And that probably can improve health. One question is, can that, could that be possibly helpful from a prophylactic perspective? So these are all sort of immune boosting. And then there's 10 or 15 herbs and a whole bunch of Chinese medicine approaches and a whole bunch of Ayurvedic approaches. And so there's thousands of immune support approaches to getting your cells healthy in your upper airway and your gastrointestinal tract that would be good hypothetical immune boosting strategies to that that could possibly make someone more resistant to that initial infection does that make sense yep glad to hear that some of my also internal research you know is is mirroring what you've kind of come up with as a protocol as well where i've been 
you know, ramping up a vitamin C, zinc, and also quercetin, looking at that as a zinc ionophore and some of the early, you know, it looks like there's actually a couple research groups that are actually running RCTs on quercetin as well. So, it looks like, and again, I think from my previous thought, it's like these are pretty low side effect profile. These are not crazy expensive. Obviously, it costs some money, but on the overall holistic evidence, it seems like neutral placebo at worst and potentially beneficial at best. And I think that's like a good enough trade-off for me personally. Right. Yeah. And I, that's what I would feel as fair now. Potentially helpful to neutral. That's exactly how I would say it. Yeah. Um, we, we don't have evidence. We don't have proof. All of those strategies, and we could talk for days about those strategies, and I'll be probably generally supportive of most most everything that you see, but I wouldn't spend your last dollar trying to get, you know, a zinc lozenge. Um, And, and, and that has been a problem because there's been such a run on the market uh, for for anything that's immune boosting. We got totally shut down for a couple of weeks. We couldn't get vitamin C. It's crazy. Jeez. So then that's this stage one. And so then that's fine. Now, then what can happen then is, is this virus goes down into the lung. And uh, if you imagine an, the airway, there's a, a cells that line the airway and they kind of manage, um, they manage airflow and they can either constrict or dilate the airways. And, um, and they have this receptor called an ACE2 receptor. And mm-hmm. That is the receptor that this virus binds onto. And so then what can happen is the virus binds on and it injects itself into the cell. And then once it injects itself into the cell, it takes over the machinery of the cell and uh, makes a whole bunch of copies. And then the cell is killed and then the virus goes back out. And then so then if you imagine this airway that just had one virus in it, now it's full of virus. And then it's going to start to attack other cells. And so then that's going to continue. And as that continues, then people can progress from just having a sore throat and some, and, and if you have a sore throat, then the body thinks, "Uh uh-oh, there's a virus. Let's create a fever to try to kill the virus. That's why people present with a fever. But then what happens if it keeps going down and it gets into the lung, then someone can get a pneumonia. When they get a pneumonia uh, with this virus, one thing that happens is, is the immune system goes, oh, this is, uh, this is worse than a normal virus. And it kind of goes crazy. And it, it has an uh, uh, overwhelming immune response. And, and the name that has been given to that immune response is called the cytokine storm. When that happens, it creates a profound amount of too much inflammation. And then when that happens, the infection can spill over from being in the lung to in the bloodstream. Mm. And then once it gets... And that's the- where you get the acute respiratory distress system, ARDS, right? On the most serious presentations of COVID. Yeah. So And so what happens is ARDS sort of comes from the pneumonia. So a pneumonia is getting worse, worse, worse on the way to developing ARDS or sometimes after ARDS, they will get this cytokine storm. And then when that happens, then it spills over into the bloodstream. And then now virus is floating around in the bloodstream. 
at first it was just in your throat, then it was in your lung, then all of a sudden it became diffusely all over the lungs, and that's ARDS. And then it causes a storm, and then now it gets into the bloodstream. Now, here's the frustrating thing about this, and to compare it to a normal flu, a normal flu will come in and it'll attack your airways and and cause a sore throat and it could cause a pneumonia. But then generally that's it. What happens here is that virus is floating around. And just like I told you, the, the lining of your airway has these, uh, these uh, cells that line it. Mm-hmm. There are cells that line your blood vessels. And they also express the same receptor, this ACE2 receptor. And so then what can happen is, is that this virus now can start to attack blood vessels. And so then if it attacks Uh. blood vessels in your kidney, then next thing you know, that's kidney disease. And I have a patient that went into, is on dialysis now because he went into kidney failure. If it attacks uh, the heart, I have a patient that had a heart attack that had COVID. Because what happened is this, it's attacking the lining of the arteries in the heart. And Interesting. And yeah. I think I've also, I'm sure you saw that headlines where there were young patients, relatively young patients, 30s and 40s who were getting strokes. And it sounds yeah. like it, given your explanation, the etiology here, okay, that the, the virus is attacking the line, the blood vessels in the brain, which is causing some of these stroke patterns. Right. And so then... What doctors do is, is if there's a, a, a clot in a, or a narrowing in an artery, they'll stick a stent in that, that's kind of like a Chinese finger trap yep. that will expand out and then it will just keep that artery open. The concept there is, is that plaque and, and uh, calcification and narrowing can, can constrict that artery. And if you put this kind of uh, uh, stent and it will, it will blow up and, and then keep that artery open. But uh, there are stories of cardiologists putting in stents and then they'll, they'll say, you'll see uh, the artery start to clot right on either side of the stent. And I think that the same physiology is happening in the, the large arteries of the brain where people are having these strokes. And the concept is, is that if the, if the virus is acting on the cells that line the artery, and then it takes over and it kills that cell. And then right in that artery, a whole bunch of new virus gets released out into the artery. Then that is interacting with the physiology of a quote unquote cytokine storm. And it's that my, my, my belief is that it's that combination that is causing what f- seems like clots and, and what, what's causing the physiology of uh, end, or, end organ dysfunction, i.e. strokes, uh, cardiac events. Um, I have a patient uh, who uh, had a pancreatic failure and developed diabetes. So uh, all, of, all, of, all of that, I think, is coming from a relatively similar mechanism. However, the virus can also have broader effects than just attacking the lining in any one of those organs. I mean, that's a really succinct, brilliant way of describing the the progression here. And it says for clarity here. So it sounds like one of the 
scariest presentations of COVID is that it goes from the respiratory uh, system into a broad systemic uh, bout, right? Mm -hmm. And it sounds like for your experience with the common cold or influenza, that is just very rare or this doesn't happen. I mean, can you give us kind of that, that delta in terms of why it seems that uh, COVID can hop it in, into a whole system at- attack much more likely than some of the other coronaviruses I, I, or other respiratory illnesses. I'm not going to give you a perfect answer to this, but this relates to its ability to bind onto this receptor and very effectively bind onto it and and then infect cells and then and then have an effect. And it can do that in in blood vessels far away. Once it gets out, it can start to have that effect. And it also has a bunch of effects on the immune system, which cause some immune dysfunction. There's a, a modality. So I'm going to walk you through a bunch of modalities that are kind of interesting. Um, there's a modality called ozone therapy. And I found, I found out about it about 10 years ago. Uh, but uh, it was interestingly... Uh, it's not regulated by the FDA. It's a therapy that's been extensively studied in Germany and Russia and kind of many other parts of the world. Yep. And it's used by, you know, regenerative medicine doctors sometimes. It was so off-label that I essentially just never talked about it um, on podcasts or anything like that just because I had lots of other things to talk about. And um, But ozone is something that we have used to take care of Lyme patients for quite some time. Um, and, and ozone is a therapy that, uh, is oxidative. And so what, it, uh, what you do is you can take some blood out of the body and mix blood with uh, a gas that's mostly oxygen and a little tiny bit of ozone. And so there's a very specific dosing and do not try this at home because you could have a horrible problem. But, um, if you pull a little bit of blood out, you're mixing that blood with the, the ozone and so then it's, you're not injecting gas into the body. And so I want to be super clear about that. Um, but it, it has an oxidative effect. Now, the interesting thing is that the blood has an incredible buffering capacity. It doesn't have that uh, negative effect, the oxidation. But the oxidation seems to oxidize other things in the blood, and particularly, particularly bacteria and viruses. And so the... the the concept is, is that ozone actually oxidizes viruses in the bloodstream and uh, could oxidize bacteria and it can make them less likely to be able to bind onto the receptor. And it can oxidize the, the viral uh, capsid and, and it has the potential to kill a virus in the bloodstream. We've been using ozone for years to help uh, patients with real complex illness infections, and particularly a lot of those patients have virus uh, viruses, Epstein-Barr, CMV, uh, a lot of patients with uh, herpes viruses. And uh, we have a lot of patients who have those problems complicated by other infections. And so I've got a long history of, of using uh, ozone therapy uh, in, those, in those populations. Uh, and there's a wide variety of different uh, techniques with it. But the, the concept that I want people to think about, and this is what I'm promoting as a concept for a study, not just to randomly do, because we need to prove this as soon as possible. Uh, so this is the IRB uh, this is one submitted of, study. Okay. One of the IRB submitted uh, studies is going in today or tomorrow. And what 
what happens is is that the if the ozone is floating around in the if the ozone's dissolved in the blood, then it's having antiviral effects right in that artery where the virus is being released and causing some of those clot phenomenons. So ozone's actually having ozone has the potential to have an antiviral effect right in the bloodstream where I think almost all of the bad complications of of COVID are coming from. Fascinating. I think that's a, a very interesting hypothesis here. So this is essentially be, once you're beyond the scope of a mild COVID infection and we see viral load in the blood, in the serum, this could be a very useful intervention to resolve that and, and blunt that systemic attack from the, the SARS-CoV virus. Right. And so then, like, I'm talking to people, like, right now, rather than treating anybody with COVID, I'm just talking to a lot of people. I'm trying to see if I can get into a hospital system. Uh, we're trying to raise some money to uh, see if we can uh, go to an Indian reservation or try to help some underserved people. Yeah. Uh, what I want to do is I want to treat a hundred people who were potentially at risk for getting intubated that seemed to have a systemic infection. And then we're going to be able to compare that to a cohort of very sick patients and then see how they do. And uh, uh, my number one priority in my life is to, to find a, I'm willing to get on a plane and go expose myself and treat those people. Um, because I'm, I'm so, I just feel like I, you know, I used to, it's interesting. I used to, run around the hospital. I, when I was at San Francisco General Hospital, we had these uh, gigantic tackle boxes full of endotracheal tubes that said like Thor on them. <laughs> and then we uh -huh. would run around the hospital and intubate people. So it's like I come from that background. And so so one one thing is is ozone. And so I think we, we really deserve it to ourselves to study that because it's a, I think it's, I, I think that that's going to be the most effective strategy. And there's people, there's some uh, some doctors in China that are set, starting to study it right now. And this is, this is an approach in Italy that's that's starting to use ozone. The second thing is uh, we have a source of um, quercetin that you can inject subcutaneously or intravenously. Hmm. And so quercetin has fairly low bioavailability uh, in the GI tract. And so... Uh, we're, we're looking at quercetin and there's a, there's another flavonoid that's called alluropine. That's an extract of olive leaf that's been, um, uh, formulated to go intravenously. And so we're going to study that both of those as a approach, either intravenously or subcutaneously. Our concept there is now, once again, I'm putting something that has some antiviral, and uh, has, has worked against coronaviruses in the past. We're not positive if it'll work against this one. But I'm able to put that into the bloodstream where uh, the actual problems are happening. And uh, in, in my best case scenario, I'd like to combine that with ozone. There is a, another sort of entire uh, field of uh, medicine uh, that's called peptides. Have you ever heard of peptides? So, yeah, um I mean, peptides are amino acid chains. Yeah, amino super acid change. Peptides are kind of the new darling of 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 functional medicine, and 
there is a sequence of amino acids, but it's a fairly uh, big sequence and it's too big to be able to absorb across your gastrointestinal tract. So the most famous peptide is insulin. And so you know that if somebody's on insulin, they have to take a little needle and inject themselves yep. because um, the, the molecule is too big. And so there's a couple of peptides that are pretty interesting. Uh, the, the most important one is uh, thymus and alpha. Uh, seems to help your killer cells work more efficiently and uh, has uh, some immune boosting effects. And I'm aware of a whole bunch of clinicians that have uh, been treating some patients with COVID that are beginning to report some positive uh, effects. And it's something that people can do just like giving themselves an insulin shot at home. We're uh, submitting uh, an, a, an approach to treating uh, COVID with uh, peptides. And uh, we're going to use BPC-157, thymosin beta-4, and thymosin alpha. And these are three of the most common peptides and probably the most common peptides that are used in the world. And what is their typical use case? Uh, uh, you know, COVID aside, like typically, COVID are these aside, the four? Thymosin alpha tends to be something that people use uh, for immune support. And then thymosin beta-4 uh, can help muscle recovery. It's been used a lot in the bodybuilding community. It can help. It, it tends to be very anti-inflammatory. Uh, it seems to be uh, have some regenerative effects. And uh, there's a lot of work with combining thymosin beta-4 with uh, BPC-157, which is also uh, very anti-inflammatory. And 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 part of uh, part of the conversation of COVID is doing something that is antiviral in the blood vessel that's going to start to kill a virus and have an effect there and allow the immune system to get back in charge. And then the part two is to then turn the systemic massive amount of inflammation that's happened there in the lungs and everywhere else off because the inflammation creates a whole bunch of uh, collateral damage. 100%. The, the next thing is, is we're doing uh, high-dose vitamin C, uh, intravenous lysine, and intravenous glutathione uh, as an IV protocol. Lysine is, has a bunch of antiviral effects. The, the vitamin C is being studied uh, all over right now, and I think it's going to be an important adjunct uh, and it's going to be more on the anti-inflammatory side than the pure antiviral side, but it, 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 it may have some antiviral effects, but I'm, I'm probably going in order of my best things to my least effective things, except the, the final thing that I think has the potential to be real interesting is in, in regenerative medicine, there's, uh, uh some products called uh, exosomes, which are stem cell secretions. And they tend to be extraordinarily antiviral. And the way that stem cells work is by secreting uh, what are called exosomes. And there's a, uh, there are tiny vesicles full of growth factors. And exosomes have been used uh, to treat a uh, COPD, which is kind of a model for ARDS yeah. uh, with some benefit. And I think that uh, there's a and, – and that's the, our first, uh, first IRB where we're submitted, I think, yesterday, um, is for uh, the use of uh, exosomes to, to treat 
uh, some of the pulmonary complications that happen uh, and, and to, to try to turn some of the inflammation off as soon as possible uh, once, once the virus gets into the bloodstream. It's just cool to see that on the cutting edge here in, the, in, in terms of functional integrative medicine, you have, you, you just list out four, five, six very interesting interventions that, I, you know, at first blush deserves to be tested and, 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 and build data around it. I mean, ha, have you been implementing this in practice or has it been through like folks in, uh, you mentioned China and Italy seeing good results there? I mean, I think the, the mechanisms seem reasonable, right? But I think we all know that there's things that seem reasonable theoretically that don't translate into animals and then from animals don't necessarily translate into humans. But sounds like these already have been used in humans in the past for other indications successfully, safely. So, there's not, we don't need to go through the animal phase. Um, but have you seen anecdotes or early signal that, hey, we think that this is going to be beneficial and beat standard of care. So I'm, I'm talking to doctors and patients sort of all over the world every day. And it's rapidly evolving. Um, The nothing that I said is in, in, in that list, I think is would, would qualify as being FDA approved. So it's all, um, all experimental, which is why, I would not tell a patient to go try these things. And yet, right. I, 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 I strongly believe that we need to uh, enroll patients ethically in clinical trials that uh, begin to look at and assess these, uh, these modalities because uh, I'm, I'm very intimately aware of all of them. And uh, my, my clinical experience is that they're safe, but uh this is the 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 problem and and uh the the fda is actually has a has developed a, a process that uh, most of the regenerative companies are following uh to develop a fast track for uh a, approval of these products because th- th- there has been uh scientific study has has been limited and is uh, is is lacking uh, compared to the the level of study that is typically done in drug development because the regenerative labs don't have that kind of uh, bandwidth to to spend that kind of money, and so the FDA has actually been uh, quite positive in terms of pushing that. And so, uh, unfortunately, this happened right as the what's called the RMAT process uh, was everybody was working to kind of diligently follow. Uh, guidelines that have been set out by the FDA over the last couple of years. And, and then all of a sudden COVID happened. Um, and so then, uh, and interestingly, the insanity of, of this is normally people like me, regular doctors would be seeing people doing blood testing, working people up uh, and having a fairly extensive management uh, period that happened uh, through telemedicine and then in person and in the clinic. And then only when that failed would they end up going to the uh, operating room or to the hospital. I mean, whereas what's happening now is people are just stuck at home in fear waiting. And then once they get, once they get sick and start to get septic, a lot of the times those people are going to the hospital, but I think they're going too late. 
And so my, my feeling is, is that we need to start to run more studies that are done uh, out of clinics where we can start to manage people and treat them sooner uh, and then build an experience of how to uh, prevent pr progression of COVID. Uh, hopefully, we get good data on uh, uh, some of the things that I'm studying, assuming that that uh, the ethics uh, process allows that to go through. Yeah, it sounds like a great effort from my end, just in, in, in the sense of decentralization of science. I think there's just, we need more innovation, more folks sniffing around on the edges of what's possible and collecting data. That's, that's what truly, that's what science is, right? It's mm -hmm. running experiments that uh, have a chance to fail or, and, or, or work and you learn from that. So mm -hmm. respect to you to be pushing out uh, like a number of studies here. That's really awesome. What have you seen on the lifestyle nutrition side for folks that might not necessarily uh, be able to get access to some of the techniques and interventions you described from ozone to exosomes for the folks that you've been taking care of what are some of the more accessible interventions or lifestyle adjustments that you've been recommending you look at some of the uh, emerging observational retrospective data uh, folks that have diabetes or obese have upwards of a 10 times fatality rate as compared to someone that's metabolically healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, that vitamin D level uh, looks very correlated towards outcomes when someone has been affected with uh, COVID. That obviously, again, gives us suggestions of how one might adapt or evolve or gently nudge your lifestyle in a more metabolically healthy direction. Um, but again, I think the caveat is that no one has proven that something like intermittent fasting or low carbohydrate diet is going to cure or prevent and, and be a prophylactic for COVID. But it seems very much in the line of one of those things that's very safe, very understandable, and is at least neutral, if not beneficial for all the comorbidities that we all have heard about. What are your thoughts there? So that's a great question. Um so then if you walk back to the kind of the story that I, I, I walked you through in terms of progression, uh, we've got had a lot of people have had uh, mold problems in their sinuses. And so we have a protocol where we give people um, uh, nebulized uh, uh, hypertonic minerals, and then we have them nebulize uh, glutathione. And we combine um, an isotonic sea mineral solution with uh, a, a preservative-free glutathione that people can nebulize. And I've had uh, a handful of uh, people email me uh, saying, hey, uh, you put us on the protocol for the mold, and then uh, we think we got COVID. We haven't been able to get a test. Uh, me and my husband both got pneumonia, and we did your nebulizing program and it, uh, every time we did the nebulizing, it helped us uh, and yeah. we could breathe a lot better after the treatment. And so there's been a, a, a common naturopathic uh, principle where people will take relatively high dose of uh, vitamin D right when they get uh, an infection uh, in the range of 20 to 50,000 units. Uh, that's, that's quite high. I think I, I'm recommending people take five or 10,000 units a day for a month for prophylaxis. Um, and then the vitamin C and the quercetin and the stuff like that. Uh, but I think we're going to 
it's going to be it's going to be a evolving and 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 i think the ex- the exciting thing is is that there's going to be as much stuff that bubbles up from the bottom as 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 coming down from comes down from the top and we're and and then the interesting thing the caveat to go back to how we were talking is that normally if someone has a regular flu there's a two week a tail and so if uh, somebody gets a flu, we came up, we arbitrarily came up with an idea that, well, we're just going to have them quarantine for a couple of weeks and then they're going to be fine. And then we've mathematically modeled uh, based on sort of that genre of thinking uh, how we're going to reopen the economy. Now, what I'll tell you is, is that my sense is that it's, that is generally true for people with COVID who only have stage one and it doesn't get into the lungs. For people who it gets into the lungs, I'm seeing many of those people will have a presentation that lasts up, up, up to six weeks and yeah. potentially even longer. And then if it gets into the bloodstream, people continue to have uh, symptoms. It can, it, it, people are losing their sense of smell, which means that maybe it attacking the cranial nerves. Um, and, uh, and so I believe that the tail may be six weeks to a couple months. And so then the question is going to be for those people where it got into the bloodstream and it's kind of out, got out of the barn, are they still going to be infectious? And then how, how is, what's going to happen with that? And we have, we're going to have to do testing and kind of manage that thoughtfully. Uh, but, but it means that there's, uh, it means to me that there's going to be a longer tail, which means we're going to be facing we're going to be facing this for for longer than than we, we're, for the next year and a half. We're going to be uh, s- still having daily COVID conversations. I think. Yeah, I think there's a real probability for that. I think one of the things I've been reflecting upon is that. This is such a multifactorial problem where we're really pushing the limits of understanding of virology, physiology, and then on the human social economic perspective, mm-hmm. uh, public health policy, uh, small business administration, mm-hmm. how to run central banks. Right? And I think I do not envy our public servants who are making those decisions for all of us. Mm -hmm. I think no one is an expert in all 17 fields, right? Like I I think one would be arrogant to say, I understand the economy just as well as I understand the virology. I think, um, and I think those, that's where people have to make trade-offs where is it worse to have all our mom and pop shops be shut down for three, six, 18 months and not have advance all the sociological data there where if people are unemployed, you get depression, you get suicides, you get anxiety, you get all this stuff. And how do you benchmark that against the trade-off of we can't let COVID, you know, continue to spread at R not three. Yeah. yeah and, and I, it's the, hard to and predict think, what's going to happen. I think it's going to be a common sense. It's going to have to be a common sense approach. And it's going to, it's, it's, so it's tricky to bring all of the stakeholders to the table and then get have everybody feel listened to and heard to and and manage a collaborative process this big but in in general i think that we're there's the possibility for us to stay somewhat socially distanced and yet open up 
relatively significant aspects of the economy where people are wearing masks, people are not shaking hands, people are not hugging. And 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 then, then we start to do a better job of, of tracking and data analysis and testing. And I think that we're going to find ways to meet in the middle. It's the biggest science experiment of our lives. And so we just have to do a good job with it. Yeah. I think that's almost understanding. It's not even a, it's a science experiment as well as a culture experiment, as well as a economics mm-hmm. experiment, mm-hmm. as well as a historical moment. I think it's one of those rare times where the entire world is facing the same thing all at once. And you just never mm-hmm. have global events where people all are living through the same thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like we can definitely talk for a couple more hours on top in, in terms of all the different things that you're involved with. And, and, and I think we have a lot of overlapping interests here, but Maybe to wrap up and maybe have a part two as we get this episode out there. Um, so we'll, we'll likely have, we'll want to have a part two here. But um, final thoughts around um, if you had infinite money, infinite guinea pigs, whether they're humans or animals or whatnot, ethics aside, what would be the, the, the money study that you would run uh whether it's related to COVID or not i think um obviously COVID's top of mind but what would be your magnum opus science experiment that you've been wanting to uh to figure out i would just because time is of the essence i mean if i had unlimited money if i had a billion dollars this is what i would do actually i would um I would treat a bunch of different demographics and locations. I'd go to some real underserved areas. And then I would also uh, treat some populous areas and go to some rural areas. I would, I would study the ozone modalities by themselves. And then in combination with flavonoids, peptides, IV uh, nutrition, and uh, the regenerative approaches. And, and there's been a, uh, uh, the the approach with uh, stem cells is another approach with culture media, and, and there's another approach with exosomes. Um, uh, I would study those uh, uh, ozone alone, and then in combination with those things, and then uh, I would study uh, each of the other ones individually because uh, many of those approaches actually can be mailed to people's houses. So we can uh, mail peptides to someone house to someone's house, uh, and um, I'm working with uh, the number one thought leader, uh, who's a, a peptide science uh, doctor, uh, on that. And so, um, and so then, so then what we, to, to then, uh, over a relatively large swath of the population with, uh, very good testing, both antibody testing, strain testing, and then swab testing began to track, um, both, uh, prophylaxis prevention, uh, uh, prevention of progression, and then uh, to track treatment of end-stage complications, like what we're talking about is uh, stroke, uh, uh, the the cardiac complications, uh, the renal complications, and uh, to in particular to look to see how people respond uh, to to those modalities with a combination of ozone and flavonoids and peptides and regenerative medicine, and. Uh, if I could, I would, I would talk to the right people, uh, 
or a governmental organization and then uh, get that done. I, th- I think you could, I'm talking to suppliers and, and you could, you could get that done in eight weeks. And so then, then that's going to be data. And, and, and the, the, I, you know, I, my practice is in Silicon Valley. And if I had a dollar for every guy that walked into my office and said, he who has the most data wins, um, (laughs) I'd I'd do something with it. So that's what we, we, we need, we need to win this. And, and the way that we're going to win this is by gathering data, trying some things that are, have a lot of common sense behind them and then trying some outside of the box things that, uh, that I think I have, uh, are extremely provocative. A hundred percent. So for our listeners who want to follow along or have some expertise or interest and may be able to help some of their research efforts, where do people track you? Where do people follow? Uh, I'm just personally curious to track the, the research here and, uh, see how this progresses it's exciting if these things um really show efficacy in in a controlled setting that would be really really exciting and beneficial for the world yeah i'm super excited so my podcast is bio reset podcast and uh my website is bio reset medical uh you can just go to bio bio reset b-i-o-r-e-s-e-t.com and um and we're we're podcasting about this and so we're we're submitting things I don't want to talk about enrolling people until we're fully through all all of our policies and procedures and ethics uh, committees and everything like that. But um, but I'm I felt like this is what I was meant to to do with my life, so I'm excited about it. Thank you so much, time Matt. This is a really fun conversation, and uh, best of luck. Like I think. I'm rooting for you and I'm sure really the entire world should be rooting for uh, you and, and, and folks on the front line who are both supporting patients, taking care of them, as well as pushing on the research side, building therapeutics, prophylactics, any right. a, any technology to help us break through this pandemic together. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, um, you, you know, what? And I super look forward to coming back and talking about NAD and uh, brain health and a lot of the stuff that because I think we have a a lot um, me and you in common in terms of how uh, we think about things. Um, and I was I was kind of heartbroken last night because I read a article about a, a a woman who's an ER doctor who committed suicide yeah. who, who was on the front lines in uh, New York and had been just seeing one after another person coming in dying in parallel to everything that I said, if I had unlimited money, I would, I would a try to deploy some of the strategies under kind of an investigational protocol for healthcare practitioners because they're, they're getting totally overwhelmed and uh, we just need to take care of each other and, and support each other. And, and I, I believe we're going to come through this stronger on the other side, but it's uh, uh, my heart goes out to people because it's just crazy. Well said. Well, we'll wrap it there. Thanks so much, Dr. Okay. Cook. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HVMN Podcast. If you're interested to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit hvmn.com slash pod. 
please remember to subscribe. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please give this video a like. And remember to hit that bell to get notified whenever we post. And we'll see you all next week.